Well, the ship was launched on January 29th, 1944. It was 887 feet in length. And she's best remembered as the site of the surrender of the Japanese in World War II. It was the USS Missouri, nicknamed Mighty Mo. And Mighty Mo had an incredible career, 17 years of active service. She received 11 battle stars and served in World War II, Korea, and the Persian Gulf. She was decommissioned on March 31st, 1992. And she's currently a museum docked on the shores of Pearl Harbor. But if you and I were to go into that ship and walk its walls, it would have some stories to tell. Mighty Mo was a battleship. There's another ship out there. It's called the Oasis of the Seas. It's over 1,100 feet in length. She launched, like you needed to know how long it was. It launched on November 21st, 2008, and pre-COVID could host uh, probably just about 6,000 people on board. Now it's probably maybe 100 if they're socially distanced. <laughs> its features include a zip line, an ice skating rink, a surf simulator, an aquatic amphitheater, a moving bar, a casino, a mini golf course, multiple nightclubs, several bars and lounges, a karaoke club, a comedy club, five swimming pools, volleyball and basketball courts, youth zones, nurseries for children. They're two ships built for entirely different purposes. The first was built for war, and it maximized its potential in doing so. The second one was built for pleasure and comfort and relaxation. I think the danger in the Christian life is all too often we go through it living in the posture of the second ship and not the first. We confuse faithfulness thinking that it's sitting comfortably until Jesus comes back. When in reality, as I read my Bible and I go deeper into the word, we are not here for comfort and safety, my friends. We are here for war. And we are at war with the enemy. If there was an, ever a man in which we could emulate how he lived his life, it was the apostle Paul. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this man who has served faithfully in ministry for 30 years is sitting in prison. And he's all alone. His friends have betrayed him. His body is beaten down. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that he was whipped 39 lashes minus one. That's because usually by the 40th whipping, the people that getting whipped would lose their life. This happened to him five times. He was beaten with rods by Romans three times. He was stoned by his enemy once. He was shipwrecked three times. And that's not to mention sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, abandonment, hardship, and loneliness. Perhaps some of you can empathize with some of those things. I know I can. Paul's been at war fighting for the glory of God since his salvation. And now as he's approaching the end of his life, he's by himself. And he's writing a letter, his final words. And it's to his son in the faith, Timothy. 
I don't know if you've ever been a part of someone's final words. They're very precious. I think of a few people in my life. The final words are precious because they're stripped of all hypocrisy. They're just real and raw. And they give you a window into somebody's heart. So as Paul writes to Timothy, he exposes his heart and his passion for the glory of God. And this is what he writes. Verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is the only time in Scripture in verse 1 that we have this kind of account written. I charge you. Paul wants Timothy's undivided attention. He wants him to understand the seriousness of what he's about to proclaim. And in turn, Timothy would understand the weight of what he carries and what he's called to do. It says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, he's emphasizing to Timothy that one day you will stand before the king of kings and you will give an account for how you lived your life. This does two things. The first one is to emphasize the seriousness. But secondly, it delivers us from the fear of what the people around us think. We're not living for each other's approval. We're living for God's approval. Verse 2, he says, preach the word. If you have a Bible, take, that, take your pen and underline that word, preach. In the Greek, it's keruso. It's to proclaim or to herald. Often in those days, a king or a ruler would send someone, a herald, to the people to communicate whatever message he wanted delivered. It was not the herald's job to negotiate with the people. It wasn't his job to come up with his own message. His job was to simply take that which was given to him and to share it with others. So Paul is telling Timothy, preach, proclaim the word of God both to the believers and to the unbelievers, the gospel. And when are we to do this? The text says, be ready in season and out of season. We read in scripture that Timothy was most likely a timid young man for whatever reason. Paul's affirming him here. Be ready, be alert, be strong. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready when it's accepted and when it's unaccepted. Be ready when it's popular and when it's unpopular when it's convenient or it's inconvenient. He goes on, he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. To reprove means to correct one's misbehavior. To rebuke means to bring one to repentance. And to exhort means to encourage or empower if you are in the room and you're thinking to yourself, you're more of a confrontational type of person, as soon as I say that, you know exactly who you are because now you want to go up and confront somebody. We read these first two and we say, reprove, rebuke. You're like, oh yeah, oh, I'm going to let them know what's up. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. But if we read from Galatians 6.1, we learn that if we're to do these things in a spirit of humility and gentleness, because we don't care about being right, we care about somebody's heart and their life. In fact, if you're wrong in the way that you're right, you're wrong even if you are right. The first two are strong, reprove and rebuke. 
The second is to exhort, to encourage, to give hope, to build others up. These are conflicting. In a word, we're to comfort the afflicted and we're to afflict the comfortable. And may God give us the wisdom in the right time because we all need both of those at different times in our life. And how are we to do this? The text says, with complete patience and teaching. Charles Simeon was a pastor, was called to be the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England in the 1700s. Upon his arrival, most of his congregation did not want him in their church. They didn't want him there. So what did they do? They locked the pew doors. Now, if you don't know what a pew door is, I really don't either, but apparently it's what they had to walk through to sit down in the pews. They locked them. This continued for 12 years, 12 years. Can you imagine? It'd be on social media and be all over the country if it happened in our church in just a month. 12 years, people had to stand to listen to the man preach. But Simeon, a man filled with the Spirit, showed incredible patience and faithfulness to his calling. And in response, he was the pastor of that church for 54 years eventually winning the hearts of most of his congregation. We're given a clue to how a man can have such patience. It was said of Simeon that he would wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and he would spend four hours reading and praying. And God gave him patience. So we're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We're told first to preach the word, that was proclamation, both to the saved and to the unsaved, and now we're told to teach the word. Teaching is explanation. That's getting into the doctrine of the scriptures. Truth. Too many times Christian lives their, Christians live their lives a mile wide but an inch deep. We're called to grow in maturity, to go deeper into the word of God, to proclaim it, and then to teach it. Verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Again, that's good doctrine. But having itching ears, they, as in unbelievers, those that just straight up refuse to follow God, and then those who are deceived, who might think that they're Christians, but they have no desire and they have no proof or fruit of growth, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Verse four, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul said, for the time is coming, so perhaps that time was approaching for them, but I believe we're living in a time and place in our country where it's already here. We have preachers who tell everybody what they want to hear, but not what they need to hear. They don't want people to open up the word of God and say that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Verse five, Paul says, but as for you, be sober-minded. This involves moral alertness. Don't let praise get to your head and don't let criticism get to your heart. Do not become discouraged in opposition, but remain steady like an airplane pilot. If there's a storm or there's turbulence, as a passenger, the last thing I want to see is my leader rush out of the cockpit and panicking in tears. That's when I'm going to start panicking. I'm going to say, hey, who's flying the plane? 
Stay sober-minded. He goes on. He says, endure suffering. This means avoiding bitterness. Don't give up when it gets hard. Later in this text, we see Paul say, I fought the good fight. And he was only able to do that because he endured suffering. If you want to be faithful in the end, you can't take any shortcuts in the middle. He goes on, he says, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The question arises, why are we here? If God didn't have a plan for your life to reach lost people with the gospel, then he would have taken us home to heaven the moment that we accepted him. No, he's got a plan, and his plan is the Great Commission. A convicting question for us all would be this. If God was to answer my prayers, would your neighbors get saved, or would we just have more stuff? He says, fulfill your ministry Each one of us are built in all kinds of different ways, personalities and gifts. God has a special calling for each and every one of us. And we're called here to fulfill whatever it is the Lord has put into our life and to do it well, to preach the Bible, to point people to Jesus, to love Christ's church, to die and then to go to heaven, to complete your assignment and then you go home to your Savior. Is anybody ready for that? I know I am. Verse six, Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is a picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. They would pour wine on the base of the altar as they lit the animal as a sacrifice to God. And that wine would create a pleasing aroma to God. Paul, who is a Roman citizen, will not be losing his life through crucifixion. It'll be through beheadment. And he's saying, as the wine was poured on the base of that altar, so my blood will be spilled for my Savior. And he says, and the time of my departure has come. Now, I'm a, I am a sucker for sentiment. If you know me well, I'm a sucker for sentimental things. And this is one of my favorite words. In the Greek, this word has many meanings. One is a soldier loosening the stakes of his tent. He's getting ready to depart from the field of battle. But my favorite one is the loosening of a ship from its moorings. Would you picture with me the Apostle Paul, this old beaten up man? He's pulled up the anchor. He's thrown the ropes aside. And he's sailing off to a better place. May that be true of us all one day. I love that it says he's not going to die. It just says he's going to depart. Because if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we don't die. We just go to our real home. Amen? Where Jesus is. Verse 7, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Paul gives us three, three pictures that associate with victory. The first is I fought the good fight. Paul was a spiritual warrior. He courageously, and paid the price, he courageously stood before all opposition in his day and defended the gospel. He said, I finished the race. Again, the wording is beautiful. He didn't win the race, he finished the race because Jesus won the victory on the cross. He says, I have kept the faith, I guarded the truth. 
against the forces of evil, and he was faithful to the very end. And finally, in verse 8, he said this. He says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Only you can answer this question, but as you sit here this morning, genuinely, do you long for Christ's appearing? Do you want to be with your Savior? I understand that I am not an old man, but the older I get, it's the more I genuinely just want to be with Jesus. There are no treasures in earth that even begin to compare to the goodness of God. Perhaps the church in America today has lost its passion because they're living for their today and not their tomorrow. This morning, quickly, let me give you three marks of a faithful servant. Let me give you three marks of a faithful servant. Here's the first one. They cultivate a passion for the word of God. They cultivate a passion for the word of God. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, tells him to teach the word. He says, rebuke, exhort. He's not telling him to share his own opinions. He's not telling him to follow his heart. No, all these things are founded in God's word because he knows that's where the joy is and that's where the life change happens. Joshua 1.8 says this, it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, I am by no means a uh, Greek or Hebrew scholar. I consider myself somebody catching the crumbs from the table. But this Greek word for meditate is hagah. Don't ask me to say that again. Hagah means to murmur or to ponder, to chew on, to mutter. And I... I I actually believe I experienced that this morning. I was so nervous to preach. I woke up and the word of God was like branded in my brain. When we think about and mutter the word of God, that means we put it into our mind and we're constantly talking to ourselves about it. We're constantly talking to each other about it. We're memorizing it. We're praying it. We're sharing it. Or an animal. Maybe some of you have dogs and you got them a nice big bone for Christmas. And what did he do? He sat down in the living room. And he just chewed on that sucker for a good hour. He was meditating on that bone. We're to meditate on God's word. And that's when it starts to change our life. Sometimes at night, I enjoy a good cup of tea. It's mostly because I am a uh, 90-year-old man stuck in a 32-year-old body. And every now and then, I just like to relax and drink my tea. Let's, pay, let's say I pour the hot water and I take the tea and I dip it in very quickly and then pull it out and drink it. You're like, that would be dumb. There was no taste because dipping it for a moment might have changed the color, 
but it didn't change the taste. If you want God's word to change your life, you have to soak in it when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm a man up here telling you, I'm testifying that the word of God is changing my life. I can't get enough of it. And the more that I put it into my heart, the more the Holy Spirit gives me more of an appetite for it because I hunger for God. If you ate once a week, you would starve to death. So why do we think it's any different in the most important area of our life spiritually? Do you feed on the word? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's number two. The second mark of a faithful servant is they invest in the upcoming generation. You see, Paul is about to die. And what is he doing? He's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, because he understands the importance of communicating the truth to the next generation. I'm really blessed in life to have a great dad. I love my dad. In fact, yesterday I stood right here Talked to him on the phone, and he prayed for me, and it was really special. See, my dad accepted Jesus as his Savior in the Marine Corps on his way to Vietnam. And then he, after he got saved, he was called to ministry. He's been a pastor for 40 years, faithfully married to my mom for 45 years. I was home for Thanksgiving, and, you know, like I'm always showing him. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm tech savvy, but I, I'm always listening to sermons and new songs and sharing with my dad. He's... 76 years old, pushing 77. Okay, so he's a little older, trying to keep up with a millennial. Good luck. On the way to church, I introduced him to the song that we're going to sing at the end here, Promises. And I love the phrase that says, I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground. And as we listened, he started learning the words more and more and more. Man, can I just tell you, as a young man, I look over at my dad and he's got tears coming down his eyes. What an investment of his life for me, that he loved Jesus. Is he perfect? Absolutely not, none of us are. But he loves God. To my dad and all the countless men and women who have invested in my life, there is no greater joy. And can I just tell you, we have an awesome children's ministry. You should get involved with it. And I like to think we have a decent youth ministry you should get involved with it. But can I tell you one of the most profound ways to invest in the upcoming generation is moms and dads teaching their children to love the Lord. There's nothing that breaks me down quicker than when I see teenagers raising their hands and worshiping Jesus with every ounce of their passion. If you want to see your children love Jesus, they need to look up and see you loving Jesus. So the second mark of a faithful servant is they invest in the upcoming generation. Here's number three, which leads us into this. They lead by example. They lead by example. Paul is not asking Timothy to do something that he has not already done himself, and he's got the scars to prove it. Paul's life was a battleship. He had the scars, the heartache, the trauma, but he left an example, yes, to Timothy, but to all of us, and we're still talking about this example. 
One of my favorite illustrations is that of John Piper talking about the difference between an adrenaline Christian and a coronary Christian. You see, adrenaline Christians are those who pursue all the emotional mountain high experiences. They want the bright lights, the loud music. They want all the energy and the passion. And to be honest with you, there's nothing wrong with those things. We go to camp. We have night of worship. It's good to celebrate, and that's important. But as Piper says, that, that, that's gotten me through a lot of Sundays. But can I tell you, it fails me on Monday because I am exhausted and I am tired, which leads into the coronary Christian. The coronary, it's your heartbeat. The coronary Christian just does its job over and over and over and over again. There has not been one day in my 32 years of existence that my heart decided to stop beating because of my attitude. You know what? I don't like your attitude today. I'm done. It just faithfully does its job over and over and over again. Can I tell anybody in here and myself, one of the most powerful ways to influence people with the life that God has given you is to faithfully serve in all circumstances of life, to serve on the highest mountains and to serve in the lowest valleys. And the greatest example in our conclusion of somebody it was Jesus Christ on that cross. And you might be thinking here this morning, if you're visiting or you're new, you're like looking at these things, you're like, listen, Jake, I'm gonna be honest with you. You have no idea the sin that I am in currently. You might be saying, you have no idea the sin that I've committed. And there is no way that I could accomplish any of these things. And can I tell you something? You're right, you can. Not one single person, even the best of us in this room can. But I have got good news. There is one who did. And his name is the greatest name that your lips could ever utter. And that is the name of Jesus. Jesus live that life that none of us could. And he died the death that we all deserved, truly. But praise God, that was not the end of the story because it didn't end on the cross because three days later, my Jesus rose from the grave and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And because of his victory on that cross, I now have the ability through the power of the spirit to obey his word and to make my life count for the glory of God out of an overflow of gratitude for what he has already done for me. No, we don't work for grace. We work from grace. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.